0: Today's Gospel comes from St. Luke, Chapter 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one and cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. He said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. morning. We see what we believe. In 1861, President-elect Abraham Lincoln was on his way from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. for his inauguration. The Pinkerton Agency was providing security, and none other than Kate Warren, the agency's first woman detective, was among his security guard. The Pinkertons had been tipped off that there was a plot against the president-elect's life uh, by a secessionist group centered in Baltimore. Kate, then, posing as a rich, flirtatious southern belle, infiltrated the southern sympathizer's group and learned the details. It seems that the train from Pennsylvania stopped at a station on one end of town, and the southbound train to Washington began at the other end of town. Along the mile-long carriage ride in between, the assassins planned to create a diversion to draw off the guard and leave the president-elect unprotected. One of the many conspirators would then be able to get close enough to Lincoln to kill him. As the Pennsylvania train pulled into the station, Lincoln's family entered their carriage as planned. Disembarking along with the other passengers however, was an invalid, stooped, wearing a thick beaver-skin cap, wrapped in a shawl, and accompanied by his sister. Kate Warren quietly walked the hunted man under the very noses of his adversaries directly to a different carriage, which left the station without incident. The secessionist plotters saw what they believed. In their meetings, they saw only a frivolous Southern belle, not Kate Warren, the crack Pinkerton agent. And in Baltimore, they saw what they believed—a woman walking with her stooped invalid brother, not the tall, stovepipe-hatted president-elect of the United States. Now, we modern scientific folks—and myself included—are generally people who like proof, seeing is believing, we say. We have an entire state we call the show me state. We're generally skeptical of unfounded claims. I, at least, am annoyed when people aren't convinced of climate change when I show them the proof. I am cranky when people don't exercise reasonable skepticism about claims about the latest diet craze or financial scheme or presidential platform. One of my my published essays praises skepticism as a virtue that keeps our laudable curiosity grounded in reality. But in fact, it's what we believe that shapes what we see. This was true for Kate Warrens and her successful protection of President Lincoln from the Baltimore plotters, and it's equally true for people of faith. Christians are challenged, invited, to see the world as it really is, created and held in the love of God. In other words, we are called to see with prophets' vision. Today's first reading will show you what I mean. This passage from Jeremiah is from an event in the tenth year of the reign of a guy I will call Zedekiah the Waffler, because he couldn't decide whether to stay loyal to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who'd propped him up in leadership in Judah, or to betray Nebuchadnezzar and throw in his lot with the Egyptians who were trying to take over. Jeremiah, maybe the most curmudgeonly of the prophets in the Old Testament, urges the people to remain faithful to the God of Israel and Judah rather than sliding into worship of the deities of the Babylonians or Egypt. In order to show the people that God is faithful to them, Jeremiah buys a field. (laughs) Okay. So, Jeremiah's cousin comes to the imprisoned prophet, offers to sell him a field that the cousin doesn't own, about three miles in a city, uh, about three miles from Jerusalem in a small city. The business that the, in the reading about the two deeds, uh, one open as a public record and one sealed like an archive, is the usual way that property contracts were sealed back then. Jeremiah's cousin must have walked away from that deal grinning like the real estate con man that he must have felt like with his 17 shekels jingling in his pocket. If you think that Jeremiah was the smart, did the smart common sense thing here, then there's an orange bridge not far from here that I'd like to sell you at coffee hour. What Jeremiah believed, what Jeremiah saw against the common sense of anybody living in a land both occupied and under attack from another would-be occupier, was the restoration of its land to its previous owners that the deed would one day be good. He believed it. He saw restored Judah, so he paid for the field. God's promise was good enough for Jeremiah to imagine uh, a transaction for what must have looked like an impossible future. The story goes on for the rest of this chapter. Jeremiah prays at length, going on about all of the misfortunes that had befallen Judah, and concludes, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city's been given over into the hands of the Babylonians. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, See, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Now remember, this is prophecy. Prophets don't tell the future. Prophets tell us what God is thinking. Jeremiah was enacting a promise that only he could see, a promise that reveals who God is, faithful to Judah. Even if things aren't going all that well at present, God will make good. Jeremiah will get his 17 shekels worth because that's who God is. Jeremiah's foolish purchase also invited the rest of the occupied people to trust that vision of who God is and how God is. This is prophet's vision, to strive to see the world as God sees it. Now, I think for us to cultivate in ourselves prophet's vision is especially critical in our time, We may find ourselves tempted to believe that might makes right, and that the only answer to violence is more violence. We're tempted to believe that life is a zero-sum game in which one group or nation only succeeds if another one is oppressed and held down. We are tempted to believe that death and destruction are the ultimate enemies. An easy example of the absurdity of this, we are tempted to believe that the U.S. needs a nuclear arsenal big enough to destroy the world many times over. But think about it. Wouldn't we really only need to destroy the earth once? And, in fact, do we really need to destroy the world? As Christians, then, we're called to recognize and reject these temptations, We're called to affirm that love really is stronger than hate. We're called to affirm that the kingdom of God has room for everybody and we don't have to compete and oppress in order to survive. We're called to affirm that in the end, life wins. These aren't things that we can prove. Not only that, it can seem crazy to affirm these things. But when we see with prophet's vision, we begin to recognize the temptations to violence and oppression for what they are, not the truth, but merely fear turned outward into enmity and anger. It begins to be clear why angels' first words to people are usually, fear not, because under the influence of fear, and I'd add despair, we can't see past the temptations. As we live into our prophet's vision, though, that vision of the world as God sees it becomes habitual to us. It's second nature. It's how we see the world. But, you know, I don't think that the major problem for us here today is the out-and-out failure of prophets' vision. I know this community well enough that I don't really think that we here are in danger of falling for the temptations of death-dealing and power-mongering. What's more of a risk for us, at least what's more of a risk for me, is what I'm going to call spiritual cataracts, and that's the topic of today's gospel. The poor man, Lazarus, lives wretchedly outside the unnamed rich man's house. Now notice, there's not a thing in the reading that tells us that the rich man is evil. There's not a thing that says that he mistreated Lazarus in any way at all. And it's not the fact of being rich that causes the rich man to wind up in torment. Abraham informs the rich man that his brothers have Moses and the prophets to guide them, but Moses and the prophets don't condemn money per se. They condemn greed and injustice. The rich man isn't evil. He just didn't see Lazarus clearly. He knew Lazarus was there outside the house. He knew his name. But he didn't see him clearly enough to see that Lazarus needed help and that he should act. It was only after he died that the reading says he looked up and saw Lazarus. Even if someone rose from the dead, we're told people with spiritual cataracts won't see clearly. Now, just as seeing with prophet's vision is a matter of practice, overcoming spiritual cataracts is a matter of practice, too. And that practice starts with noticing who and what we deliberately don't see clearly. For example, for many of us, it can be hard or discomforting to deal with homeless people. For myself, I don't like being asked for money, and sometimes I feel threatened by panhandlers, and then I resent it. So I try to avoid eye contact, so I won't see them, as though they're not there. Spiritual cataracts. People who use wheelchairs often say that people on the street don't look them in the eye. Spiritual cataracts. When we decide not to look too closely into the business practices of those who manufacture the goods we use or we decide not to ask if there are other alternatives. Spiritual cataracts. If we don't want to know how our food is grown or harvested and sold, spiritual cataracts. I know I have them. Maybe we all do to some degree. Maybe this kind of problem is nearly universal for people in rich societies like ours where we don't see the Lazaruses of our world. We're not blind, we just don't see that well. So what do we do? Now I could torture this visual metaphor and talk about spiritual cataract surgery. Maybe spiritual lens implants don't think I'm not tempted. (laughs) Instead though, I want to invite all of us into two practices of prophets vision, one like Jeremiah's and one for spiritual cataracts. The first, cultivating prophets vision. The temptations of money and power and security through arms are pernicious and widespread in our society and they often seem real. On the other hand, the truth of God's fidelity and uh, the power of love to overcome that darkne- uh, the darkness can sound like a fantasy. So, I'd like to invite us to a spiritual practice of dreaming. How would things change for us if we believed that love wins in the end? What would happen if the United States became a nation capable of saving, not destroying, saving the whole world, many times over. I'd invite us to dream just one part of that and tell somebody. See, the power of Jeremiah's purchase of the field was was its ability to invite his neighbors also to have confidence that God is faithful. If, for example, you find yourself taking your 17 shekels and tossing it into the Peace and Global Witness offering, great! Tell somebody. Christians are often told that, well, when we do good things, we ought to keep it quiet. No, 17 shekels, buy the field, tell somebody. But the important part, the imagining part, is the letting go, to be free to see with prophet's vision, and like a prophet, to share what you see. So what about spiritual cataracts? As Sweet Honey in the Rock so memorably sang about the justice issues in the manufacture of clothes, are my hands clean? I think if we tried to completely disconnect ourselves from every situation in which there's a suffering Lazarus that we don't see clearly, we'd find ourselves living under a rock and off the grid. Structures of complicity are ubiquitous and disentangling ourselves from all of them feels like a monumental, and I suspect, an impossible task. And this is before I get into other areas in which basically good-hearted people get caught up in social lies like sexism and racism and homophobia. So what's the spiritual practice? Try one thing differently. It doesn't have to be a big deal, and examples are easy. Um, just find one think of one that works for you simple thing if you like strawberries buy organic strawberries for the sake of the people who harvest them Uh, one parish i know puts together little baggies with things like a bottle of water kleenex a little bit of candy and other useful stuff and people keep them in their cars and when you pass somebody on a street corner asking for a handout they get a baggie and a smile Um, I don't know what the book club here is reading. Okay then. Um, Join that book club or start another book club. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, cool. Um, (laughs) Heck of a guy. Um, uh, Well, I I was going to say, uh, read about a noble whistleblower or a social justice advocate. That works. The key concept here is, is just humility and openness to learn and a prayer for a clearer vision. Because believing is seeing. When we strive for prophets' vision, we begin to see the world as God sees it. When we begin to clear our spiritual cataracts, we see more clearly how we are to be prophets, seers, in the world. And finally, we might, become, we might come to the insight that as Jesus puts, uh, that goes like this: when Jesus talks about it in Luke's next chapter, the coming of the kingdom of God can't be observed, and no one will announce, "Look, here it is," or "There it is." For behold, the kingdom of God is among you. Amen.